Again, take your, your Bibles and turn with me to Malachi. While you're turning there, I'll say just a few words. Malachi chapter 3. We uh, started several weeks ago this little series on stewardship. We looked at stewardship of our children. We've looked at stewardship of our hearts, keeping our hearts. Stewardship of God's graces that He gives to us. Last week we looked at one of those means of graces, particularly the Lord's Supper. Stewardship of the Lord's Supper and the sacraments in general. And today we conclude with stewardship of God's money. It's uh, rather ironic this morning that uh, one of the former pastors and loved by many folks here, David Hall's here. I don't usually call people out, but I don't get a chance to embarrass him often, so there it goes. But I was told not long after I arrived here that you know David Hall preached a sermon about money once a year. And I thought, well... Okay, but you know, I, we just never kind of got around to it, and so now I'm doing this stewardship series, and the, the Sunday that I'm preaching on money happens to be the Sunday that he's here. So I wonder if, who this sermon's really for. <laughs> it can be sort of a, uh, a sensitive issue. Uh, people get real attached to their, their goods, don't they? Uh, that's what the passage in Matthew is about, isn't it, that we just read. How easy it is for us to love the things of this world and to, to be con- so concerned about them, forget that God takes care of His people. And, uh, and yet He calls us to be good stewards. This passage in Malachi is, is a classic. Uh, you know, if we were in a classics course, we'd refer to it as a locus classicus. It's a, it's a classic passage for this topic. So let's read together. Beginning in verse 6 actually. Malachi chapter 3. For I the Lord do not change. Now keep that in mind as we work through. And as you process this. In the coming minutes and hours and days. The Lord does not change. Therefore you O children of Jacob. Are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how How have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You're cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will be It will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight. 
says the Lord of hosts. Grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our sovereign God endures forever and ever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and ask now that you bless the reading and hearing of your word and now the preaching of your word. Change us, Lord. Make us better than we were when we arrived. Cause us to put you to the test by responding faithfully, by returning to you. May our hearts be warmed as you teach us. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. The Bible tells us that God is a jealous God. And he calls us to be, as a jealous God, good stewards of the things he gives us. And that includes our money. Let me go ahead and say this right off the bat. Money is not evil. In fact, it's talked about a good deal in the Bible. Now, the love, the lust, the coveting of money is evil. The Bible's clear about that. But money itself is not. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This, this sermon, and this text, the Matthew text, all tie in very well with the stewardship of our hearts a few weeks ago. Remember? From Proverbs 4.23... Keep your hearts with all vigilance. It's been said that, you know, a person's checkbook can be a good test of your holiness. God wants us to remember this always. Everything we have is His. We are to work it and we're to take care of it. Remember Sermon 1 in the Stewardship Series? We looked all the way from Genesis through. What does it mean to be a good steward? To work it, to take care of it, to own it, to use it. Who was the bad steward in Jesus' teaching? The one who took it and used it wisely and did something with it? Or the one who sat on it? Well, the bad one was the one who just took it and hid it and didn't didn't use it. He didn't take care of it. He didn't, he didn't cultivate it. We want to be good stewards of God's money. The Old Testament church in the time of Malachi. We studied Malachi six years ago now. I looked back just to see. I'd forgotten. It seemed more recent than that to me. I think that's what happens when you get older. Everything seems more recent than that. But it's been six years We studied through the book of Malachi, and we looked at this, not particularly on this topic, but in the course of the whole text. One of the things that we saw back in those days was that these people had had been abusing a number of things. They had perverted worship. They had perverted the priestly office. There was adultery taking place in their midst. There was divorce, and he told us earlier that he hates divorce, not something God condones. And now, he accuses them of robbery. And he tells them that they're living under a curse. 
If this were not in Malachi, if this were in Jeremiah, the Puritans referred to passages like this one as Jeremiads, taking the way Jeremiah preached. And here Malachi takes up this same sort of preaching. You're cursed. You're cursed with a curse, he says in verse 9. So this thing of robbing from God is no small thing. We see it in the New Testament that God takes lying and robbery seriously. The case of Ananias and Sapphira, you say, yeah, but the main problem there was they lied to, to God. They lied to the Spirit, that's right. But they also robbed from God. Because they said we're giving it all. And then they lied and said we're giving it all and they gave something less. So they both lied and robbed in the same episode. And you remember what happened. Well, that God doesn't do that anymore, Pastor. He doesn't drop people on the spot. I don't know that he doesn't. You don't either. You just hope he doesn't. Right? I hope. And don't give me this. Well, that was the God of the Old Testament. Please don't go there. You, you've been taught much better in this congregation. The God of the Old Testament, God of the New Testament is the same God. There is only one true God. He's still a jealous God. And he's a God that, that does not take lying and robbing lightly. So, as we think about this, that's really the hard part of the sermon is that, is that Jeremiah right there. God takes robbing from him seriously. We're supposed to give. Every Lord's Day morning, we, we have a moment in our worship service to worship him that way with tithes and offerings or contributions. Sunday evenings, there's a plate available for diaconal gifts. and So we, we take giving seriously around here, or at least formally we do. And I hope in every heart you do as well. This passage helps us think about it. Let's look at it. Let's see that how God deals with these people who have misused His money and they've robbed from Him. First thing I want us just to note the sociology of stealing from God in verses 7 and 8. Return from the days of your fathers, he says, from the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Now he's just speaking generally here. Just in general you've turned aside from my statutes, your fathers, and you're doing just like them. It's interesting, he doesn't call them to repent of their father's sins here. He calls them to repent of their own sins. There's nothing they could do about their father's sins except learn a lesson from them and not live like them. And so here he says, your, your fathers. The dispute he has with them is that they don't keep his statutes. Return to me. And then they ask the question, how how can we return? In other words, where are we? That's what he's asking. Where, where, return from where? What have we done wrong? Well, he's been telling them the whole book what they've been doing wrong. Abusing the priestly office again. Adultery. Divorce. They have a lot to return from. They have a number of 
turnarounds to make in their life. But here's the thing. You notice God doesn't say to them here, Oh, you know all that you've done. Because here's the thing, folks. There's a sociology. I learned this lesson a long time ago from a dear friend, Pastor Alan Carter. He and I were talking through a pastoral situation, and he looked at me over, his, over the table of lunch in Birmingham, and he said, Don't you know? This guy's from Mississippi. He's a Ph.D. from Notre Dame. He said, don't you know there's a sociology to everything? You figure out the story and you know why this is happening. Now, here's the story. These people, they had been doing these bad things so long, they didn't know it anymore. Isn't that true? Sin breeds ignorance. We desensitize ourselves, don't we? We, we stay in the same rut with the same sin long enough. It's not sin anymore. That's just normalcy. And then the world jokes about it, don't they? When you say, well, you know, we want to return to something normal. You know, normal married relationships. Normal this, you name it. And they say, normal? What's normal? Because in a relativist society, there is no normal, Right? That can happen to us too, folks. We can, we, can, we can live in a sin to the point where we don't recognize it any longer. And that's their problem here is they, they've denied it, they've lived in it, and they're not doing what they need to do. And the Lord calls them to repent. Second thing one should see is the sin of robbing God. He tells them what the sin is right now that he's dealing with them about and which he wants them to turn away from and and come back to him. Will man rob God, yet you are robbing me? And then notice how how they say, robbing you? See, here's the thing. Here's the sociology of it. They've done it so long, they don't even know. Have we been robbing you, God? And he says, yes. How have we robbed you? In your tithes and your contributions. Now, what were the tithes? A tenth of all that remained after first fruits. You find that in Exodus 13, 2, Exodus 22, 29, Exodus 34, 19 through 20. Genesis 14, Abraham tithed. 28, 22, Jacob tithed. In Leviticus 18, 28, 27 and 30. So they were supposed to bring that one-tenth. Now this is, keep in mind, this is after the first fruits. Now this is going to start adding up, folks. Because here's the, here's the common, common little mistake. A tithe is a tenth, right? Well, Etymologically it is, but as you understand, you don't always just go to the etymology of a word and know the final word. There's a signification to it, right? You've got to know how it's being used. So yes, it begins with the tenth, but that's after the first fruits. 
Then the Levites, they were responsible for another tenth, a tenth of the tenth to go on to the worship of the Lord. And then there was the annual tithe, Deuteronomy 12, 4 through 19. And then there was a triennial tithe, Deuteronomy 14, 22 through 29. So every three years. And that one was designated for the poor and the widows and the orphans. And here, the Lord just simply says, in your tithes and your contributions. He's just speaking generally. They've neglected all of these. How can that be? Well, we saw back, we could go earlier in the scriptures. Sometimes they neglected circumcision. And you'd think, after Genesis 17, after the Exodus, how could that ever happen? Well, you know why. <clears throat> the scroll of the Torah had been mislaid, displaced, out of sight. And we all know out of sight is out of mind. There are a lot of reasons, a lot of ways that people cannot do what God says, but one of the main things is neglecting God's Word. That's the primary reason we sin and fall particularly into the sins that beset us and the sins that desensitize us is because we've neglected God's Word and the Spirit's tool in our lives. Then there were the voluntary and compulsory offerings, Exodus 25 and Exodus 29. Those contributed to the maintenance of the temple service of worship and the Levitical ministry in life. And so here, in the, just that little brief sweep, and you can just go back in your concordance, either in the back of your Bible or a, an exhaustive concordance, and you can look up all those, and you realize that you have the first fruits. So those first livestock were supposed to be given to the Lord. Then you have the tenth. Then you have the, the triennial. Then you have the compulsory. You have the voluntary. It was more than 10% that God required of his church. And notice it is a requirement. God is not dealing with them. He's not cursing them. Why, does, why would God pronounce a woe or a curse on these people if they were not acting lawlessly? That's what sin is, and that's what deserves the curse, is sin. And what is sin? First John tells us sin is lawlessness. So this is, this is the people acting against God's clear commandments. You're cursed with a curse. I don't think in this room this morning I need to expound upon your cursed. That's enough said, as we say. It's not good. You don't want to be there. You don't want to be under God's curse. We take vows as members of this church and every PCA congregation to support the worship and the work of the church to the best of our ability. 
So we have to ask ourselves, do we keep that vow in relation to the, to the fiscal responsibilities that we have before God? Grace upon grace has been poured out upon us. We're told in John 1. And when you think in those terms of grace upon grace and all the, the bountiful blessings that the Lord gives us, how dare we be misers and pinch back pennies that are the Lord's? He gives us everything. He lavishes us. Dare we withhold from God as Ananias and Sapphira did? I've heard people say, since I read from Malachi, well, but that's in the Old Testament. That's, that's then and we live now. First of all, uh, to, to, to make that false distinction, that was in the Old Testament, uh, is, is an erroneous statement. We are under the law. Paul said it's spiritual and good. He said it's holy. Even in those places such as the ceremonies, the feast, where those have been met once and for all, they're still useful, aren't they? Because they help us understand what all our Lord Jesus Christ did for us. So it helps us to love Him better and to understand what He purchased for us and what it took for us to be purchased by the blood of the Lamb. But here, Malachi's words endure. Christ said of him who, uh, who has been given, much will be required. To whom much is given, much will be required. From him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more, we're told. And if this is true of men, how much more so of God? So, what are the requirements here? The sovereign requirements and the sovereign rewards. He talks about them too. The requirement is bring the full tithe into the storehouse. Now, the the word there, the full tithe, is getting back to all that I've just read. He didn't want them understanding just that that first fruits or just the one-tenth. But the full tithe, bring the full tithe into the storehouse. Why? So that there may be food in my house. Now let's just stop there for a moment. God doesn't have a body like we do. Children, you learn that in the catechism, right? Does God eat food? Well, no. What's God saying here? Well, As I said, with a couple of those tithes that you were supposed to give, those were to go to widows and others in need. In other words, God's food is our food. In other words, it's for the care of the church. So that's how we should read it. When God says that there may be food in my house, He's saying, bring the full tithe in so that my church can be taken care of. In all of its needs.
there's probably no one in this room knows better all the needs than Bob Neer. The reason is because for 128 years, he has been handling... He's been handling the books here at Covenant Presbyterian Church. Just after the war ended in 1865, you know, he, he took up the cause. No. I said that not to talk about his age, but talk about his faithfulness and his generous giving of time. But because he, he issues those checks and he deals with those contributions, he knows the needs. He knows that things don't just happen around here. I think sometimes it's easy for us, in general, around the building, up here, down here, to forget that. That's what God's telling us here is that, folks, things don't just happen. He decrees all things, but his decrees do not override secondary cause. Our confession says that because the Bible says that. We're the secondary means. We're the ones important. We're the ones to give, to take care of one another. The communion of the saints. This this whole tithing, contributing, voluntary giving that we talk about is all part of our our being saints in communion with one another. And so just take this sermon as you would. Hebrews, when we're told, let us stimulate one another to love and good works. Now that verse says, let us consider how to stimulate one another. So let's consider, let's prepare, let's think about how we can can encourage one another. Take this sermon as an encouragement to be a check upon your checkbook, your giving. You say, well, so how much should I give? Well, here's the deal. Paul says it this way, because Paul's building on the Old Testament. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews. When he, when he baptized Lydia's children, he was building on the Old Testament theology. We're not told in that passage, as I've taught you well. I hope you've learned well. We're not told in that passage that Lydia's, all of her family, her father, her mother, all those living in her household came to sudden faith in Jesus there. No, we're not told that. We don't want to do our theology from silence. But the reason Paul baptized them all is because they were a covenant household. And there was one believer in that household. 1 Corinthians 7 says that if there's one, the whole household is holy. They're to be set apart. Baptism was administered. You say, okay, you just lost me. Why'd you bring that up? Well, I brought that up to illustrate. To illustrate that Paul worked on an Old Testament construct theologically and practically. He doesn't go into the details of, okay, you need to give a tenth and you need to do this and you need to do this. That was already prescribed. That was already dealt with in the law. So he comes to them as people who have enjoyed the grace of God 
And he says, be generous and cheerful in your giving. So all those things you know you're supposed to give, be generous with it. All that you're supposed to give, be cheerful in the way you give it. Don't begrudge it. Why? Because God has lavished grace upon you. How could we dare be misers? How could we say, oh, well, maybe that one was tied to ceremony, so I'm going I'm I'm to mark that one out. No, the fact is, when we've experienced God's grace, His loving kindness, His steadfast love, we want to give to Him, don't we? And we go back and we read that verse. And He says, Bring the full tithe in the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And we're reminded of Jesus' words. When have you done this to me? When you cared for the naked, when you cared for the hungry, when you cared for the thirsty, when you visited the prisoner in prison, you did it all to me. So when we give on the Lord's day, we're giving it to Him. How could we not be generous? How could we not start with that which is grace, the law, and be gracious upon it? Grace upon grace he gave to us. How much more we ought to give to him. And notice what he does now. Once the requirement's clear, he says this. He says, put me to the test. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Remember what Jesus said? Pressed down, overflowing, Test me, he says. You give and I'll outgive you. Now, that's not health, wealth, and prosperity. That's just the truth. Because we can't outgive God. No sin we have is bigger than, all, than his grace. And no giving will not be rewarded. He says so. Then notice what he says. He'll not only bless the church, but he'll make her not only, not only bless her in her context in the covenant community. But notice what else comes out of this. I'll rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil. In other words, I'll make you fruitful. And then notice what he says, verse 12, then all nations will call you blessed for you'll be a, hand, a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. In other words, God, God wants to use us in this community and in this region to make unbelievers jealous. Look how God takes care of those people up there on that hill. I've, I've had people in Oak Ridge ask me, how did y'all build that big building up there? I don't say, well, it's not a big building. But I do say, God. But God. Is that not the standard? We're coming October 31st. But God. God is sovereign. That's how we built this. That's how we made the move. That's how we sold that building down there. And that's how we'll move on and on and on is trusting God and He'll reward us and He'll bless us. But notice, this begins with a curse. They're not being blessed earlier. They're not being blessed in their disobedience. They're being blessed in their faithfulness. Yes, God is faithful even when we're unfaithful. I know that. The Bible says so. 
But if that's true, and he says it is, he says, I don't change. And that's why you're not consumed. And then he says, but you ought to be consumed. You're not giving to me. You're robbing from me. But then the end is this. I have blessings for you. I not only will I not consume you because I'm a gracious, loving, heavenly Father, but I will bless you when, you, when I bring you to repentance, I will bless you and I will make the surrounding nations jealous for what you have. Wouldn't that be wonderful for us to walk around Oak Ridge and Knoxville and people be jealous of who we are? And I'm not talking about what we drive or what we have, but who we are. Christ's people. Children of the living God that He takes care of and He provides. My, how they love one another. Wouldn't that be wonderful testimony? And it'll begin here with us repenting and being faithful in our giving so that we can do for one another and we can do for others outside. So we can continue giving to Alonzo Ramirez. Wasn't it a blessing to have him here last week? We can continue supporting Tom Matthews to translate God's Word. We can continue doing more. Where is your treasure? Wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart is. Is your treasure in Christ and His church? Don't try to separate those two, folks. Jesus Christ came to die for His church. He's eternally linked to us. Ephesians 1 tells us that. We are His and He is ours. Where's your treasure? Listen to what William Still said in his work of the pastor. He says, when the word is rightly preached, and I trust it has been this morning, and it's effectually received, believing folk who may have grown cold and worldly like the time of Malachi will begin to loosen their purse strings out of thankfulness to God for His living word and the church finances will improve. That was William Still's experience as a pastor but is also his knowledge of the Bible from passages like Malachi 3. May God bless us. May we turn, examine ourselves and give. And give. As I heard Ian Hamilton, my good friend from Scotland and Cambridge, England these days, say one day, you cannot outgive the Lord. And you can't be more gracious than the Lord. Amen. Father, we thank you and love you and pray that you'd use this now to make us more like our Lord who gave himself in toto for us. We pray this in, in love and dedication to him. Amen.